0: We're happy and lucky to have Ian Overton here, who is, as you have read, the head of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, which was set up a couple of years ago with um, a grant from the Potter family. We'll talk about that. Uh, and its brief is, as its name suggests, to sponsor and further investigative journalism uh, in the UK with uh, the kind of implicit assumption that investigative journalism. Is now facing difficult times because of the well-known problems, especially in newspapers. It's somewhat akin to uh, the somewhat larger institution in the U.S. called ProPublica, um, uh, and it's had a number of the bureau has a number of of, uh, of pieces to its credit, including one that Ian will talk about recently, and we will talk about others. Um, in my own newspaper, the FT, there was a, a very good piece published on the European Union. Uh, uh, and the the work is is continuing. Ian was um, a broadcaster on this for the BBC and ITN before the Bureau. So uh, over to you, Ian, about 40 minutes, and then we'll have discussion and questions until about 3.30. Thank thank you very much. Um, I
1: was slightly struggling for a title for this, so I I completely stole from Walter Benjamin's um, essay on... um, in an age of uh, mechanical reproduction <laughs> um, but um, I, I work for and run the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and um, as John said, we've been set up to bolster the state of investigative journalism in the UK with an initial investment of £2 million. Um, although I have strict editorial independence, that money has no influence whatsoever on the decisions and the stories we do. Um, we're based at City University London, but we're not exactly part of the university. They just give us free accommodation, effectively, and we take on a lot of their interns from, from the City postgrad course. We have a, a key staff of four people, but we bring in lots of freelancers. Um, um, who work um, either on rolling contracts or on, on fixed projects and the key areas that we're, we're interested in are um, health um, human rights, open society and, and watching corporations so if you go to our website which is com, you can you can see the broad areas that we're interested in and we, we generally work on a kind of a basis of collaboration because obviously with the legal implications of publishing on our own it's much safer if we publish with Um, already established media organisations and so we we tend to get in bed with um, other media organisations who either take on some of our costs or um, take on board um, uh, some of the journalism so that we we share the journalism and as a consequence you can see just in the last year some of the people we've worked with um, the thesis of what I wanted to talk about today is I, I believe that the impact of investigative journalism over time has lessened from if you sort of take the nineteen sixties and seventies as a as a high benchmark of quality investigative journalism, I think that the impact on on the the, the power basis of the state has not just in the U.K., but, but over a number, of, it was in the U.S. as well, especially, but it, throughout Europe, has lessened. And I think reasons for this include changes in the media landscape, financial constraints, and I, uh, what I'm going to dwell on a little bit today is the growth in public cynicism and try to approach that. I think news organizations, however, um, shouldn't be too despondent about this. I have a, a deep belief that actually in an age of digital reproduction, which I'll go on to explain, investment in stories... That's both getting the story and getting it out is worth the effort. So, what is an age of digital reproduction? Well, as you can see, we live—I mean, I'm teaching you all, I'm sure, to psychics—but we live in an age where really it's it's all a battle for the eyeballs, um, as they say in the in the the broadcast industry. Um, iPods, blogging, Facebook, 24-hour news channels, cinemas, computer games, multi-TV. I mean, you can see why, um, evolving from an age when maybe there was one newspaper in your town which you could read, and that was the only way you'd get the news, to hundreds of ways to get the news. And this has had an immediate impact. This is uh, a couple of years old, but it's still a steady decline in in newspaper sales and circulation. Um, And even news audiences um, has continued a, a, a long and slow erosion. Um, I I think the result has an oft-touted crisis in news I I think it possibly is an overhyped crisis, in the sense that as a consumer, it's never been a better time, if you want the news it's a great time for news, and there are investigations out there, I mean if you really go out to look for investigative journalism, and you spend and the Bureau every single day does a tweet that we do what we consider the best investigation out there. And there's some great investigations. It's just finding them. Um, But I think the crisis is very much an internal one. The industry is struggling to find a new business model. And the victim of this is is a possible lack of financial investment in investigations. And I believe, ultimately, a lack of impact that many investigations have. You can invest a lot of time. And it's all about, well, what is the consequence? I mean, journalists want to see a consequence to our actions. Well, I hope we do. Um, so, who killed the newspaper? Well, um, media proliferation, free content, obviously affects the sales and advertising revenue. Capturing eyeballs is harder and harder. Um, I think this sort of sums it up. This is why, you know, it's very hard to get out there. Not that this exists, but the, the, the rise of the rise of Google has really had an impact on on the 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 ability to financially. Get away with, with news me, me, so media proliferation I think there are other threats to the industry the cost of living of journalists the skills that journalists employ and, and ability to investigate the, the specialisms in, uh, um, in journalism lawyers I think have had an impact I mean there's big debate we, we get threats from legal letters all the time and it, and it does put people off considerably um, obviously a decline in, in, in sales or a decline in advertising I think from the consumer perspective a reduction in attention spans um, the, 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 the 140 syllable word tweet or, um, uh, it has really had an impact rise in alternative outlets um, so not just uh, the newspaper but as I've gone to explain lots of other outlets and um, content reproduced without financial gain these are just some of the threats the industry is facing. I'm sure we could I, I could name another dozen, um, but the rise in instant media is, is, is one which I'm quite interested in about attention span it's The Twitter Twitter has, has shown a remarkable rise. Um, Lady Gaga is the uh, um, the leading tweeter out there with around 10 million people listening to it every single time. She just drops comments. I mean, that putting within context is you can name the top broadcast uh, uh, the top broadsheets of the UK and the US and you're probably getting the same sort of impact as Lady Gaga just talking about what she had for breakfast I mean it, it, it's it, on one hand it can be depressing but I think we have to acknowledge it and then embrace it because if you don't then you become a dinosaur news is constant and instant I mean, um, and Twitter is involved in this so the, the Hudson plane crash 326 it took off 27 engine trouble 30, crashed into the Hudson 36, first picture was on Twitter, and it took until 3.48 for the New York Times to break the story I mean news is you know, the, the, and, and journalists should really grasp the opportunities inherent in, in what this instant media has, we shouldn't just see it as you know in a curmudgeonly way as being a threat, I think we should see it as well how, how do you use it to your advantage um, but, of course, the fundamental problem is trying to get heard in this incredibly crowded market. How do you get your, your voice out? How, how can your story stand out from the rest so it has an impact? Um, I think the media has tried to respond to this in lots of different ways, and to some degree, is it a dog chasing its own tail, is it a futile response. Much effort to compete has lost much. Um, much money has been spent trying to work out ways. To compete in this marketplace, and lots of people have lost money in so doing. Uh, people have tried to expand their output, um, and consequently, I mean, just talking from my own experience in newsrooms, journalists have just exhausted over the stretch. And I'm sure you, coming from your own newsrooms, you must have experienced that as well. That you know, you can't. There's a limit to how many tweets, Facebooks, copy you can produce in a day on a single story. And I think that that issue needs to be addressed. Uh, this is a. I, I, I thought it was quite a good comment. I don't understand. I watered down the content, redesigned what was left, and gave it away for free on the internet. And yet, I still can't understand really what he's reading. Newspaper. And his therapist is clacking away at the, at the internet. So this is the modern face of media. This is what I mean. Uh, I used to work at Channel Four News. So um, um, Krishnan here is, you know, he's the TV anchor, the traditional your man But at the same time, he's tweeting. He's blogging, he's Facebooking he's, he's, every, he's trying to get as much out as possible but it's often a superficial reaction to something and the question is, is where does investigative journalism fit into Christian's work is, is, a, is a fundamental issue And I think, getting to the heart of the problem, one of the challenges that investigative journalism has suffered is that there's been a shift in the media landscape has resulted in, I believe, actually, as much as an engagement with many people, but I think some people have been alienated as a consequence of what the media has had to do to shift. And I'll try and explain that a bit more in detail. But I think there's been a, going to the heart of this, I think there's been a divergence in the language of power and the language utilized by governments and the people that investigative journalists lawyers and corporations the people we try to investigate and the language of describing that in the media you know, you've got a comparison of trying to explain a 755-page um, report by a government body, and you're trying to get that out on Twitter. Um, the, the two are diametrically opposed. And I think that this this has resulted, to some degree, in more and more disenfranchisement amongst people. And I think this is something that a lot of news organisations don't truly... Um, Get to the heart of, and in the sort of this is called, this is the news diamond, and I've, I've taken this from online journalism blog, but I think it really comes. To, there's a kind of a at the very top you've got the speed, you've got the Twitter alert, something that's really happened. It's an instant issue, and then um, and then in the middle is what investigative journalism is depth, it's expanded. It takes a long period of time, and Paul Bradshaw explains this in, in the. Then, beyond that, you have interactivity, um, people writing about the investigation further down the chain, people being able to interact with the uh, each other on a website, saying on BBC News or something, being able to say, I don't agree with this, or this is rubbish, and that well, is a, a very useful tool. But where the investment needs to come from the news organisations is in the centre line, in the depth. And, and that isn't just from the news organisations, but also is from the consumer. So investigative journalism requires investment, both from the media company and, most importantly, I think, from the consumer, because investment is, is, is in their time to read the report to have that impact. And that's hard to get. So how can you engage with the audience? So I think this is particularly hard. The media explosion, in my opinion, has caused confusion, to some degree boredom, cynicism, and apathy. I think think there's a danger that there's too much information out there for some people, and that important stories are smothered by less important stories, and um, that there isn't a prioritization of what is important and what is not. Um, we have boredom. We have cynicism. We have apathy, and you know the X factor um, is ultimately distracting. And and, you know, I think this this picture to me sums it up. You've got Michael Douglas on the left hand side saying, "I feel stronger every day," and Michael Douglas on the right hand side preparing to die Uh, at the same time. I mean, it's not surprising that the consumer reading headlines like this. And I appreciate this isn't, you know, um, high end journalism, but they're confusing messages and. Where does, and it is very postmodern, where does the truth lie? What is the story? Did, what, you know, did someone just see those like that? Or did no, 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 this is a, a real picture. It wasn't staged. No, no, no. no. Um, the divergence of language, I think, though, comes to the heart of it. From In, in my opinion, that investigative journalism has to be about the analysis of power. But I believe that over time there's been a widening gap between the language of power and the language of the mass market, or the language of approaching the mass market. And I think this divergence has made the job of investigative journalism harder and harder, trying to get people engaged in complicated, serious, potentially even slightly dull and worthy issues, but nonetheless issues that ultimately, if you don't address them at the beginning, they end up you know, destroying a landscape or destroying a people or starting a war um, I think the language of power has shifted over time and the language of the media has chased the mass market so the language of power I think has shifted um, towards a bureaucratic position where um, bu- bureaucrats use internal language to describe they live in a kind of hermetically sealed world where they use their own language to describe things which has nothing to do with the way that most people speak and their reports that they produce and the UK government produces masses of reports and I think huge amounts of it go completely unread I did an investigation into how many news, how many articles were translated into into different languages by the British government, and we found that something in the region of 70% of translated articles were never read by the public. Um, and whilst I appreciate that it's important to translate articles, the question is: is is there this sort of overloading of information? Um, should we do questions at the end, or um, the the the? the um, the, the language of the media has chased the mass market, and I think this has had two impacts. There's a certain, and I found working with young journalists, an ability, uh, uh, is there, it's, had, it's had maybe a failure, or a, I say ability, or a lack of ability, of new journalists to engage with the language of power. I, I find, you, you find that journalists in their early 20s, coming out of college, they don't, I mean, obviously they need to learn, but generally speaking, they're not well versed in reading legal reports or reading um, a company accounts because it's not the language that, they've, that teenagers have grown up with that's my own personal experience um, I also think that the ability to make the stories that matter relevant to people is quite um, harder and harder we're taking complicated bureaucratic language and making that accessible and approachable to the mass market is very very difficult to do um, now in terms of the shift in the language of power from governments, I think there's been a movement from the public to the private sphere um, there is um, greater transparency, yes but is anybody reading it? what I mean by that is that um Politicians are no longer believed when they open their mouths. I don't think I don't think they were, were ever truly believed, but I think there's been an erosion in the credibility of politicians. I think when people read enormous reports, you can you get to the end of it and think, actually, there was nothing truly said in that. The truth people are never they never put their neck on the line. They never say what they really feel. They never they never um, actually nail down what the point is, there's always a subject and I think that has resulted in deep levels of cynicism it's resulted in a growing sense of isolation and distance from power and there's a feeling of deep powerlessness on the part of people now, um, this shift from the public to private, if the the form of, of public Punishment, or the, the form of punishment by the state, is the most explicit moment when power is evidenced by any government. Then, in the 18th century, you saw this is a Hogarth print of a public execution in London. Um, you know, the, the, the man is, is on his way to the, the gallows, and um, you can see, um, the, you know, the, the crowds are all there. This is, um, I mean, Foucault used, wrote very extensively about this, the, the way in which power and was a physical representation that the, the public's bloodlust, so to speak was assuaged in these actions and I'm not suggesting for a second that this is a good thing but this is just, it was a time when um, there, was, there seemed to be a relationship between people's opinion and the machinations of power um, the current situation, whilst not in the UK but in the US is this is what happens when an execution it's sterile it's behind closed doors it's secretive it's regimented it's bureaucratic and I think this is obviously I'm using this as an analogy for a much wider failure and um, this failure is is, is Summed up in my eyes, in these two reports, one is a legal report, one is an NHS review. I mean, this is gobbledygook This is how people write in, in, in government. These are this is about um, protocols so are cascaded to senior staff across the organisation, through to frontline staff are a structured mechanism to facilitate ownership of data. Now, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. The personal injury, injuries litigation is the paradigm instance of litigation in which the parties are in an asymmetric relationship, as discussed in chapter 9 above. I mean, how that, what that means actually, I don't think even Lord Jackson would that. But, but, but the problem I think you've got is that journalists not given the time and energy and skills to understand what Lord Jackson is saying there, the, the danger is that that actually could be an incredibly important bit of legislation that's being pushed through and it's going under people's noses. And then you suddenly get this in, instance where the public isn't engaged with it because you can't understand the language and journalists haven't touched on it because they have rushed off their feet trying to tweet and blog and Facebook and all the rest. Um, and I think this is summed up by these two pictures this is the, lo- the last weekend telegraph and this is the first telegraph mm-hmm. look how dense the first telegraph is That's sort of, it was the language of the courts the public were attuned to the language of government when papers were first used um, the, the public, you, you can read 18th and 19th century broadsheets and even early 20th century broadsheets they're, they're in depth they're, they're, they use complicated language they use the language of power I don't think that today the media uses the language of power. We, 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 we have gone down in our search for ratings uh, an attempt to use the language of the mass. And I think often that that has resulted in, and, and I kind of believe in the Reithian argument here, where um, Reith, who used to uh, um, run the BBC, believed that the BBC had a duty to sort of influence the media landscape. Um, of, of Britain, I think that if, you, if, if in your influencing of the media landscape, you're trying for the lowest common denominator, ultimately that media landscape becomes the lowest common denominator, and it. And I think there's a devaluation of argument that happens with that. So the outcome of this, I think, is investigations can, not all the time, but can lose their way, and commissioners become obsessed. They're obsessed with youth, with. A, Y-U-F-F if you want to pronounce it right Um, The media, and particularly investigative journalism I think sits uncomfortably in the middle ground They're trying on the one hand to describe this bureaucratic language of power On the other hand they're trying to talk to um, uh, the masses and, and explain that And often I think the point is lost and then this comes up in a great example of BBC commissioning. This is a £120,000 an hour commissioning page, which is what you would be paid for if you got. And what they, what they, you can't read it very well, but um, this, this is, they say they want gritty personal journeys in current affairs. They want to. They're, they're, they're issued around image, lifestyle choices, and um, becoming an adult whatever that means um, and, and um, the, the, the one this is a BBC current affairs output it's called Peckham Finishing School for Girls this is what £120,000 of taxpayers' money or, or licensed payers' money is going into investigative journalism and I wanted to find out the figures for this and the BBC refused to tell me under commercial confidentiality I wasn't able to find out how much Peckham, finishing school for girls, was watched, or how much it cost, even though it is out of the relatively small and diminishing pot of money being used for current affairs. And to me, this is what's wrong with current affairs um, and investigative journalism. Um, and I think that this has a direct consequence, is that there's a lost sense of democracy, both in the UK and and in many other places. Um, This is a picture of the 2003 march protesting against the Iraq war. And we all know what happened with that march. Completely ignored. And I think there was a lack of engagement. A lack of engagement on the ability of of the press um, to truly forensically analyse what was being lied about at the time. And I think that was a failure. And I think there was also a failure of... The government to listen to the people, and that was a million people marching. And uh, you know, I think a lot of people who went on that march, and um, that was a watershed moment because I think it, it, what it created was a deep level of cynicism in, in people. And I think you know that is not just there. There's lots of marches, lots of attempts to to for investigations or or for, for for current affairs when it seeps into the mass market and has no impact. And I think the consequence. If, it, if there's no impact from a moment of outrage, then the emotional reaction is cynicism and then disenfranchisement. But are there solutions? I mean, is this, is this you know, it's a pretty bleak picture I'm p- painting. But can there be solutions? I believe there can be. I believe that if you present content in a much wider variety of ways, you ultimately will get that content won over, and then people's approaches to that content, and so the wider issues will be changed over time and there's something called the digital long tail which I'd like to talk about which is the suggestion that stories and investigations can have many faces, many ways of presenting from Twitter through to a book um, and even a computer game it's about expanding the content but giving the investment to do so Um, uh, something the Bureau is heavily involved in is cross-platform collaborations I also think that news organisations shouldn't try to beat the news churn but the news in itself will have its own momentum. And if you try to, 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 to jump into that momentum, you get too lost in it. Um, I, the, I picked up the, the Times the other day, and the first 23 pages were devoted to the death of Bin Laden. And whilst it is a monumental sto- story, the question is: is, do you need 23 pages to explain the death of Bin Laden in a paper that's finite? Should there have been twelve pages of bin Laden and actually ten pages of other news, which because once you know you, you ascertain bin Laden's death, and then if there was extra information, then you could have been pushed towards a website, and that's where you get the depth in that I, I think people they turn off when you give them too much information unless you can lead them through the process. and it's about, it's about storytelling, it's about saying, look. If, you, if, you, if you're interested in this, why don't you get interested in this, and this, and this? And ultimately, um, you, I think it, the, the, the cabinet's expensive story is a great example of that. I think you know, it did engage the public. And there was an outcome. And it is proof that investigations can have an impact. And the way that that was done was through a huge variety of Facebook, and media, and Twitter, and television, and, 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 and a constant campaign by David Bogart. But it was also because I think they enabled the population at large to get engaged with the story through blog forums and to, and, and, and chats and everything else. And I think that, that you know, just in many ways, when people say to me investigative journalism is dead, I don't think it is dead. I think it's got challenges. But I think, you know, all, the Telegraph, despite being slapped over their wrists for their fishing trip recently, um, has um you know done done the the, the media proud with that investigation the digital long tail is, is, is the area which um, this is a. a, um, a US phrase um, that um, shows that generally speaking this is the lifeblood of um, a a story on the, on the popularity of the number of hits or readerships or whatever it has is on the left, and then the products or the, the impact that that has um, goes on, on the bottom. Um, so a story comes out initially. 10 million people hear about it. But of those 10 million, you may get um, 10,000 who may go into the yellow space actually going onto the website to read about it in detail. And one hopes that those 10,000, the reason is that many of them will be influencing individuals, that they will be involved in that field of work. That they, you know, if, if It's a story. I did an investigation into the WHO, for instance. And we showed that there were conflicts of interest in the WHO. We went out on Channel 4 News, we got two million viewers on Channel 4 News, but actually the biggest impact it had was when I went out with the British Medical Journal. When we went out with the British Medical Journal, that's when Margaret Chan from the WHO sat up and paid attention, and that's when she started making statements. Had it just gone out with Channel 4 News, she would have gone, well, it's more news. But because it goes out to opinion formers, that's when it has an impact. And that's when change can occur. Is targeting your stories to people who can have an impact. And this is is where the digital long tail can work. You can start off with Twitter and get um, you know, the Lady Gaga tweets it, and 10 million people read about it. But then those 10 million, uh, 5 million go to the website. From those 5 million, um, you might also get another million people buying the print edition. But then you also sweat the assets of the story. You get it out on radio. You possibly even write a book about it or a film. You get involved with lobby. You get lectures, you have seminars you make it multilingual multinational. All of this I did with a recent investigation I did into something called the Iraq Warlogs with WikiLeaks. With Iraq Warlogs we went out on Twitter, we had a website, it's just been nominated for an amnesty award, called IraqWarlogs.com we went out with Le Monde in the print edition we did uh, uh, interviews with Channel 4 um, sorry, with um, Radio 4 and the Today program for radio. Um, A book is in the process of being written, but we also did a one-hour dispatches film. We also did a one-hour film for Al Jazeera. So two separate broadcast agencies. We decided to go out with both or I persuaded both to go out with us. Um, I'm lobbying Nick Clegg at the moment um, to um, uh, make true to his word that he would do an internal investigation into the Iraq Warlogs and um, um, not at the moment, but in a week's time, if you look on our website, you'll look that I'm doing a, ca- a count up from when Nick Clegg has done his promise to actually when there's an outcome, and that will count up will stay on there until um, you know he's embarrassed to do something. Um, I've been I've done a number of lectures, um, I've done a number of seminars based around Iraq war logs and multilingual. We um, uh, we're the most read in China, of all the world. We, we released. We did a press release in Chinese about what we had found, because no other Chinese journalists had been involved in access to that information. We were in the three top selling Chinese national papers, and um, you know clearly we had a ma- massive impact in that. We were multinational, we went with Le Monde, we went with the Spanish papers. We got our story out um, around the world, and interestingly, our second biggest, um, our, our biggest visitors to our site is from Russia, even though we're a UK organisation. Second biggest is Mexico, simply because um, we picked up. We gave out all of our information for free on the Iraq war logs, and we gave a Creative Commons license, saying you can take what you want. Another example of what we've done is, is, is a European Union structural funds, um, six hundred. Um, uh, um, Uh, £60 billion uh, worth of of funds um, dispersed by the European Union between 2007 and 2013 we found with the FT huge um, elements of of, of failures in where those funds would be spent and the way that that worked is I um, again got a commission from Al Jazeera to do a a, a documentary a Radio 4 um, documentary that's just won a Thomson Reuters award for its investigation, um, we tweeted it. We put it on our website. We tried to get it across a whole variety of, of um, stories. Now, if there's nothing, I mean, trust me. If there's one thing that's really boring: is European Union structural funds. It's an incredibly dry, boring subject area. And but at the end of the at the end of the dullness, what we found was actually taxpayers' money is funding the Italian mafia. Now, that. Is not a boring, dull story. That's just in the storytelling, and that's the stories we end up running with. And, and but you have to go through an awful lot, of, an awful lot of bureaucracy to get that in the story. And that's really, I, in my belief, my belief is where power succeeds um, in its abuse. Um, is I think, in the, especially in the Western uh, world, power uh, and uh, it, it succeeds through obfuscation and being dull and being boring and putting out too much information. And it's journalists' role, I think, to investigate that, to find out um, what the actual kernel of the story is, and then to take that story and to turn it into a story. Um, and to do that, I think you need investment. I think needs um, an investment will have an impact. Um, investments in journalists so the journalists become specialists they have their skills um, and I think specialism over time will prevail where you have a specialist in Europe let's say the European Union so they understand the language of the European Union or that you have a journalist who has a legal background who understands the language of lawyers and by understanding their language you can find out what the story is and it's not just about understanding language, it's about contacts. I, I, I tell my journalists on a regular basis, I want you to get out of the office and meet people, because too many journalists are tied to computers, and we you know, believe that this is where the story is. And all, all we're doing is churning other people's stories. Journalism is where other people are. I mean, yesterday, I was secretly filming in a brothel in East Hounslow. And the reason I was doing so is because um, the government has very, very clear ideas that um, uh, the trafficking of women is is, is absolutely widespread and that the people leading it is the Chinese mafia. And that's what the police are saying. That's what the government's saying. So I went in, and I spent two hours with a Chinese journalist, secretly filming a Chinese pin, who completely broke down, not realising, thinking that we were in there for the business, but saying that actually it's about girls who want to come over to earn money. Now, this might not be a savoury story to tell, but ultimately it goes against what the government is stating about the trafficking and the proliferation of trafficking. And under the guise of the trafficking of, of, of women, then they, they pass law making making prostitution, or, or the, the more than two, illegal. Now, this then has a knock-on effect. To, it pushes prostitution underground, like in East Hounslow, where these girls had no access to health care, they were terrified of being raided by the police, and whilst they were making £2,000 a week uh, for doing what they were doing, um, it, it was, um, there was certainly the evidence that they were being intimidated by local criminal gangs to hand over protection money. Now, in my eyes, that this suddenly creates a problem when, when we're not given the honest opinion about a story because all we do is read what government reports are. Rather than going out and getting it ourselves, when you go out and get it yourself, you can actually challenge the, the mantra that's given by not only the government, but often by the media as well, because media is getting its sources from the government because people aren't going to the ground and doing what it's doing. But I think the outcome of all of this investment, going to the ground and getting the story and going undercover, or whatever it is that you do as an investigative journalist, is exclusivity. And this builds up, as a media organisation, your reputation and also the willingness for people to pay. And this investment works. And this is a a clear example. It's a a Swedish newspaper. Um, 40% of this Swedish newspaper is produced in advance. Since 2001, the Swedish newspaper market has declined by 17%. SVD has increased by 12% and, and um, the mantra of the editor is anything that can be done in advance must be done in advance he's all for forward planning two thirds of front pages are planned um, and the emphasis is on original off diary stories and they're coming up with more agenda setting news lines of their own and because so many pages are prepared in advance when something big happens they throw more resources on the hoof so they can react to the death of Osama bin Laden, but also they have originality, and I think it's originality that's going to really be the saviour of lots of news organisations. And, and and I mean the Murdoch papers are. I mean it's. it's I'm tweeting every day. Great investigations. Front page of the Times today. Um, access into Syrian prisons. A great investigation by Martin Fletcher. Um, I tried to tweet that, and of course I tweeted it. And um, people would click through, and they go straight to a Times paywall. You have to pay now to get that investigation. But if the appetite is whetted, then maybe people will spend a pound to go and read the story. I think. Um, and whilst I'm not going to be a, whistlebl- a, 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 a you know, blowing the whistle, blowing the uh, trumpet for the Murdoch empire, I think um, paywalls are going to be a very interesting. Thing and it's interesting. The Financial Times are currently um, offering £90,000 a year for a a lead investigative editor, somebody to actually run special investigations. That's me.